welcome to a night of total terror. Hello and welcome to the Undead Wookiee Podcast, Episode 5. I am your host, Hugh Lloyd. The Undead Wookiee Podcast is a fortnightly podcast where we focus mainly on sci-fi and horror. However, there will be times where we dip into other genres and other platforms. As here at the Undead Wookiee Podcast, our nerdiness knows no bounds. As I said right at the start of the show, this is Episode 5 and we will be looking at... Ridley Scott's 1982 seminal sci-fi classic, Blade Runner. Um, I'm very fortunate on this episode. I'm going to be joined by a very, very special co-host. But before I introduce my uh, co-host, let's enjoy the trailer. I need your deck. This is a bad one, the worst yet. There was an escape from the off-world colonies two weeks ago. Six replicants, three male, three female. They slaughtered 20... A Blade Runner's job is to hunt down replicants. Manufactured humans you can't tell from the real thing. What's this? Roy Batty, probably the leader. There was just one outfit making replicants that superhuman. The Terrell Corporation. Dr. Eldon Tyrell. I don't get it, Tyrell. Commerce is our goal here at Tyrell. More human than human is our motto. I was looking for six replicants in a city of 106 million people. You ever see this girl, huh? Never seen a buzzlove. What I didn't know was they were looking for me. Questions. I just do eyes. Just genetic design. Just eyes. Hello? I'm in a bar here now, down in the fourth sector. Why don't you come on down here and have a drink? That's not my kind of place. Time to die. If I didn't care more than words can say, if I didn't care, would I feel this way? Excuse me, Miss Salome, can I talk to you for a minute? <laughs> you for real. He's a damn one-man slaughterhouse. I'm going home. Oh. 
God bless the 1980s. What a fantastic trailer. And from my point of view, um, and given that this episode is probably going to be one of the, our longer episodes because we've got so much to talk about, it sums the film up nicely there. So, uh, at this moment in time, I would like to introduce my guest, uh, a very good friend of mine. Um, some might say a connoisseur, a cinephile of the highest quality. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I would like to introduce my guest. Alex, how are you this evening, fine sir? I'm very good, Hugh. I'd just like to confirm that I'm a cinephile. <laughs> really crystal clear. Uh, I'm good to myself. Yes, not bad, not bad, not bad, not bad. So we're here today. We're going to be talking about Blade Runner. Amazing. You know, I mean, this is a film that has, for me, in my very humble opinion, has set the standard for how science fiction films should look. Definitely. Uh, for how they feel. Um, I mean, it has that real sort of, um, you know, I think it's in a lot of ways, it's probably not the creator of the cyberpunk genre, but mm -hmm. I think it has aided, you know, it's aided massively in pushing that forward. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, obviously, directed by Ridley Scott... What's your, you know, we usually we have a guess on it, say for a top five of their films, but obviously, I know, I think Ridley Scott can be a bit more, um, he can be a bit more divisive with top five. So what I'd say is, you know, out of his catalogue of work, what are your favourite films of Ridley Scott? Well, uh, you've got Blade Runner, you've yeah. got, you've got Alien, oh. um, which is just, again, another, I mean, he literally goes from Alien to Blade Runner. Which is uh, probably the greatest one-two, uh, you know, as, uh, as films go. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously, love Gladiator. Yeah. Uh, I do feel uh, with Gladiator. It is about historically accurate as an episode of a Pompeii at times, though. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. And it, and it is, you know, it's it's almost like a superhero film. Yeah. Uh, you know, Russell Crowe's in there just taking on all comers, <laughs> uh, but it's 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 a it's a cracking romp of a film. Yeah. Uh, uh, Thelma and Louise is incredible. It's it's just now, an amazing film. People often forget about that because whenever they think of Ridley Scott and particularly his sort of his late brother Tony Scott, they think of very masculine-driven films, don't they? But you know, Thelma and, Thelma and Louise is uh, is an outstanding film. Yeah, and I mean, you get Thelma and Louise back in the very early nineties. What is it? Ninety-one, ninety-two. Yeah, I think it's about ninety-one. And, uh, you know, we're still in a situation where we don't see, I mean, we see very few films like that. Oh, yeah, completely. Um, uh, you know, uh, we still get people, I might be looking at one of them right now, gets really upset about uh, all-female Ghostbusters. So mm, Yeah, that's a controversial <laughs> one. Say, say, say nothing's the best. <laughs> you know, I mean, you do have to tread carefully, because if you do say that you don't like the film, you do get accused of hating all women. Um <laughs> Um, but I'll sit, you know, I just, I, I, right, okay, let's, gloves are off, I hated it, not, not because um, I thought that, it not, nothing to do with the fact it was an all-female Ghostbusters team, I just yeah. thought it was about as funny as an orphanage burning down. Um, <laughs> I, don't know, I, I mean, I've said I'd give it another try, but yeah. I, you know, I, you know, my, there was myself, uh, my wife, uh, my brother-in-law and we were sat there, and the three of us were looking at each other as if to say, "What are we watching?" You know, 
Yeah, I guess I guess you know we went to see it. Uh, me, my partner, and uh, niece and nephew. Yeah. And um, I, yeah, I just chuckled all the way through it. It's so you're right. It's one of those things. You know, divide. It's it's not a bad thing to divide people. I don't think. You know. No, I I think you know it's a conversation piece. Yeah, yeah, but let's talk about Blade Runner. Yeah, anyway. let's get back on a Blade Runner before I lose my entire audience, no matter how small it is. Um, yeah, so I mean, yeah, so other, you know, we've talked about Thelma and Louise. Are there any other Ridley Scott films that uh, jump out for you? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I quite, quite like Hannibal. Um, yes. I, you know, you get uh, you get to see. All right, admittedly, um, you know, the the makeup on on Anthony isn't perhaps as can't really make him younger than he was in Silence of the Lambs, and it's not Silence of the Lambs. No, no. You know, it's it's kind of the reverse Ridley Scott, isn't it, in, in some ways. He can't make a film that's better than Silence of the Lambs of that particular genre. Mm. And, you know, Ridley Scott's been doing that to other people, and, and, and that's why we get so many sort of, like, uh, shonky rip-offs of Ridley. As, yeah, as he, no, as that's, true. that's completely true. I mean, I really like Hannibal. I, and one of the things that I love in Hannibal, I think it's one of his major strengths, and actually, um, I think it's a strength in all of Ridley Scott's movie, and particularly for this one, is his use of music. Mm. Yeah, yeah, um, that's very cool. And I think his use of uh, music in Hannibal is is brilliant. I think the scoring in it is is stunning. Yeah, I do like yeah, that yeah. One. I'm with you. I'm with you on that. I mean... Obviously, the scoring in Blade Runner is something completely otherworldly and just just ridiculously good. Yes, yeah. I mean, you know, it's interesting, isn't it, when you think about sort of um, Ridley Scott's film. You know, for a period of time, lots of his music, um, and I'm particularly, obviously, Vangelis uh, did the score for this. Um, mm. You know, he used that very sort of synth-driven very trippy, sort of almost dreamlike quality to his films. I mean, you know, legend. When you look yeah. at legend, and I mean, um, a bit of controversy around the score of legend, because of course he brought in uh, a Tangerine Dream at one point, which... Amazing. I, I, yeah. But, um, oh. you know, Vangelis in the, for, the, for me in this is, is just, it's stunning. It's absolutely stunning. And it's again. It's another case of if you just saw the print of that film, without, and again we'll probably come and talk about the voiceover at some oh, point. Yeah, yeah. yeah. If, you, if you saw with no sound whatsoever, you wouldn't necessarily then think that Vangelis was going to go on top of that. No, you know the, no. that sort of like uh, that ephemeral uh, synthy sound that he's got, Completely, and. Yeah. Such a there's such grit in the film, and then you've got this amazing counterpoint uh, with sort of like the the glittery sort of like you know plinkety plonk music yeah, as yeah. it's you know, just ah it's amazing it is it's great. So for you, uh, when we're and I mean it's it's a fairly you know it's a fairly big question. What works for you? What works for you with Blade Runner? Um, exactly. And I think that's sort of, you know, it's interesting whether it was done on purpose. <laughs> mm. um, but um, I think it really works and it, it, it does help. I mean, when you look at this film, stylistically, this film is completely arresting. It's, yes. You know, this, you know, it's, ima- you know, it, it, the imagination, the visual artistry that's gone into those effects to creating Los Angeles. This, this, yeah. This, yeah. This, 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 you know, this sort of, 
you can see that the environment has, you know, it's just collapsing around them. You know, people are leaving, they're going off world, you know, yeah. it, and it has this, it has this real sort of, you know, end of days kind of feel to it, you know, and, you know, you've got the acid rain, you've got the environment, uh, you know, and I think it sort of, he marries that sort of gritty visualism, visual realism with that sort of sci-fi type aesthetic. I think it's, it, 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 you know, it's a remarkable job, remarkable yeah. job. It, it's it, it's almost something that is, admittedly, uh, Ridley Scott's quite an eclectic director, uh, and, and he doesn't really start checking out films quite as fast as as perhaps you know, and um, perhaps because Blade Runner was so painful, perhaps that's yeah. why he doesn't come out so, quite so quickly. But certainly, when you look at Alien, which again is is a uh, is you know is out there in space, and it's it, but it's quite earthy in terms of you know when you think. Of guys aware and etc um but then in terms of this takes it to a whole new level and um i've you know i, I was just doing a little, little bit of reading around and he basically it, it it's all driven by the fact that when he was traveling out to los angeles and you know he, he could see that this was a um a, you know a, a city of years of urban deterioration yeah. and, and disintegration and um but, you know, he could see that, you know, this was a city with his guts on the outside, um, but the guts can be beautiful. Yeah. And I think that sums it up, you know. He... On, on, the, on, the, on set, he brought in a guy called Sid Mead, who was, um, he's, uh, he's a futurist designer. And one of the things that's, that, that Sid Mead uh, sort of brought to the production um, and is heavily influenced, and you can see it actually in the sort of the industrialized background, is um, that sort of the Fritz Lang feel of Metropolis? Yeah, definitely. Big, 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 big influence on the film. You know, and when you look at Metropolis, which, you know, Metropolis was 1927? Yep. 1927. You know, that film is massive, and it still looks massive today. Um, yeah. And then when you look at the background and artist work that's there, it is just stunning. It is absolutely stunning. Um, yeah. I I love that bit. I I love that sort of you know that that keen detail for the for this uh, for this piece of film. It is just it and it, it I think if it wasn't of that quality, I think we'd be looking at a very very um, a very very dull piece. Yeah. Well, look. I mean, you know, in terms of what. Uh... The film isn't massively, the plot isn't massively dense. It's, you know, no. in terms of, it's, it's, it's quite a brief number of scenes, really, you know, or sequences as to where we go in terms of this world, etc. It's the, the, the poetry in the film and, uh, and the actual sort of like the whole build of the world. That's what keeps everybody coming back to it. You know, yeah. It's, yeah, it's so endlessly rich. And uh, you know, it's it's also quite a you know it's it's got some very prescient things to say about society uh, and where we would go in. I mean, you know, integration of technology and humanity. You know, it's got that pivot to Pacific Asia. Yeah, yeah it has. It's got uh, the prevalence of advertising, which obviously we don't get sort of like the internet, etc. But you know, we we certainly get that advertising all the time. You know, yeah. and yeah. Well, I mean, there's, um, there's an author out there, a guy called um, Kanichi Omar, and he wrote a book called False Dawns. And one of the things that always struck me about his book, it's all about the sort of globalization 
of world economies. And actually, when you look at Blade Runner and you look at that, you know, the, the fact that you've got these massive corporations, you know, you've got the Tyrell Corporation, and the fact that, you know, it, you know he, he lives in a pyramid. Yeah, yeah, he yeah, yeah. In a pyramid. You know, this yeah. guy is the creator of, of people, of worlds. Yeah. And, you know, it, 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 it's, it's really interesting how it was sort of ahead of its time it was. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, again, in terms of, you know, Tyrell is, is sitting on, you know, at the, as you say, at the peak of this pyramid and, and all the sort of meaning that comes with that. Um, and, you know, and, and that's juxtaposed with the really, and, and I mean, his place is pristine. You know, oh, yeah, there's completely, completely. It, it's it, it's it's a neoclassical fascist dream. It's just, <laughs> you know, it is just perfect, pristine, clean lines, etc. Um, and then obviously, you know, when you look at where Deckard's living, and and you know, he's that's that's a big old gulf. You know, and, and it's JF Sebastian's character. Yeah, and I mean, yeah, yeah. You look at that sort of that art, you know, that you know, and you you look at the Art Deco design of where he's living, and just the almost abject squalor, until you go into his little sort of his own little palace with all his toys and those. It, it's um, you know, it, it it's it's such an interesting, you know, again again, it is. I think it's a film of counterpoint. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, that I mean, that's where that, that's where the, the film gets. Outside from the plot, that's where the film gets its tension from, you know. Yeah. And uh, um, you know, in terms of being being forward looking, you know, as you say, Sebastian, he is. Uh, I mean, could suggest that he's a hipster, really. I guess you know, he's <laughs> got a grungy place which he's sort of like kind of living in on his own, and uh, he's got his sort of like his his uber modern things tied in in a sort of postmodern way with all the archaic structure. Yeah. of the bribery you know yeah. so um, there's a couple of things it doesn't get right in terms of the future mind i mean you know everyone still smokes yeah and there's still papers so you know uh, <laughs> it doesn't get everything right but you know it's it's definitely it's definitely give, gives you a lot to think about and apparently pan am was still around yeah <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> of which you probably same as me the only way i knew pan am when i was a kid was uh you know kids wearing pan am trainers yeah and Generally, getting a lot of abuse. <laughs> Not that I wore them, of course. No, but... no, no. Never had a pair of Pan Am. <laughs> I mean, the, obviously, I mean, it, one of the things that the film um, draws heavily from, um, and when you look at the source material, is the Philip K. Dick novel, Do Androids Dream of Electronic Sheep? Now, you, on your own, dude, you go for it. I mean, I got to be honest, I read this, I read it when I was much younger, and I didn't get it then. And I read it a couple of years ago, and I still didn't get it. Um, but what it does give is it gives the sort of setting in the world. It, it, it does create that world. Um, okay. And the sort of the one thing that, um, interestingly enough, though, I'm going to go slight side, side tangent here. The title yeah. Blade Runner is never mentioned in Philip K. Dick's book. Never ever mentioned. The, yeah. <clears throat> the title Blade Runner actually comes from a book by Alan E. Norse, um, where he, which is all about sort of, uh, there's a guy who um, sells medical equipment 
right, okay. uh, and supplies it to outlaw doctors uh, yeah. who can't obtain them legally. It, it, it's a bizarre. It's I've, I've never I've never I've, I've started it, but it's one of those books you go. Right, hang on. We'll just put the page <laughs> mark in here, and I'm going to go and read a bit of you know. Um, What's his name? Bravo Two Zero or something like that. You know, you, you, you just until my brain stops bleeding long enough. I got you. I'll dive yeah, yeah. back in. But I mean, like, um, androids. Do androids dream of electronic sheep? There's this. There's. Uh, it's it's more of an ecological film, uh, for a book that sort of. I think you can see how it got into the film. There's. Um, it talks more about sort of um, how the Earth has sort of you know has just come back from the brink. Of World War Three, um, okay. there's the decay, there's the dust, there's the grime, um, and there's obviously at some point there's been this mass virus where animals have been practically wiped out. And there's a nod to um, there's a nod to that in the um, in the scene where you know you see the owl, yes, um, yeah, yeah, and the snake, and the snake, and yeah, asks, yeah. Well, you know, is that a real snake? And she says, well, you know, do you think if I could afford a real snake, I'd be here. Um, yeah. And one of the odd things, because Philip D, you know Philip K. Dick is this, you know, somewhat odd man. Well, he's a deep, deep guy, yeah. <laughs> deep guy, and, and, and there's a bit in the book uh, where Deckard is tending to his android sheep, because okay. all he could really afford was sheep. Hey, we're from South Wales, mate. You know, uh, <laughs> I'm getting too much an android sheep. It's um, yeah, it, it's it's a really you know. There's a heavy emphasis on, like, um, in the book, the sort of ecological themes. It really, right. really does. And it, it, like I said, it, it talks about, like, this nuclear war. Um, and it sort of, it doesn't sort of follow the film, or the film doesn't really follow it in any particular way. It's just that sort of inspirational sort of world setting. You know, it, it, it's, it, it's, it's deep. It's very, very deep. And you can't really compare the two. You know, yeah. it's it, 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 you know, it's like sort of apples and oranges. You can't really sort of, you know, you both you, you know they're fruit, but really, you know, you can't <laughs> compare the two of them. Uh, well, I guess you know, Fancher is is the uh, is was the primary script writer for uh, Blade Runner the film. Yes, uh, yes, yeah. And yeah. Um, and I mean, you know, he'd have, uh, he he was you know writing it for quite a while, and then David Peoples comes in as well. Yeah. Uh, again, another great script writer, Twelve Monkeys. Yeah, uh, you know, another big favorite of mine, and um, you know, so the amount of time that they put in, we're talking like you know, a good twelve months of uh, of sort of beating this back and forth. Ridley Scott is clearly very invested in the uh, in in the piece as well. Oh yeah, so it gets knocked all out of shape by the time it comes to to, to filming. Uh, but but it's great to hear that it's still got uh, a little bit of the soul of the original source material. Yeah, it is still there. I mean, when you look at it, and one of the things I did, I went sort of back and I sort of looked at different pieces and sort of thought, well, what is it different? You know, where is the, you know, where does it differ? And I mean, one of the key things is obviously the film took place in Los Angeles in 2019. So not too far off, apparently. <laughs> um, I'm making those pyramids, dude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but the book takes place in San Francisco. All right, okay. And it takes it's it's set in San Francisco in 1992. Okay, um, all right. But in later editions of the book, they changed it so that it would be it would take place in 2021. 
Right, okay. Um, and then, I mean, the other thing that it does have in common, you do have this, you know, any artificial human, they, you know, they call them replicants. They do keep okay. that in there. Um, but the replicants, um, they're sort of, um, they're not quite, they, they, he sort of, he mixes between the term replicant and android a lot okay. within the pair of them. Um, I mean, the film focuses more on the nature of humanity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, sort of, and how to, and, and, and sort of, I think the film spends a bit more time sort of setting up the void comp and those type of things to sort of distinguish between human and replicant and those type of things. Um, yeah. Like I said, the novel emphasizes more the ecological themes of it. Um, in the film, obviously, and we could probably talk a little bit around this, you know, Deckard, you know, in the book, sorry, Deckard is, you know, he's divorced. Um, he's a um, he's a retired replicant hunter. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, so, so they bring him back, sort of not quite in the same way as the film, but they bring him back. Um, okay. But in the book, Deckard, um, his wife's name is Iran. Um, and he's not been long. He's sort of he, in the book. He's more of a Sam Spade type character, more so. All right. He's a bit more. Yeah, like, yeah. So He's got that more of that feel, you know. Um, and there's a couple, and like some of the other changes, like Rachel Sean Young's character. Um, yeah. You know, in the film, obviously, she's unaware that she's a replicant and she falls in love. Um, but in the book, she's Rachel uh, Roshin, and she's a schizophrenic human. Um, okay. And she can't pass the Voicom test. Later on, it turns out that she is an android. But so she's a schizophrenic android. Okay, all right. You can see how when you read in the book, it completely falls apart. And you're sort of, <laughs> you're sort of there going, my head is hurting. Um, and, the, the, you know, obviously the, the famous scene in the film is where you've got Zora, where she's running from Deckard. Um, yeah. And that's a beautiful yeah. shot, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it, it, and it's brilliant for, for a couple of reasons. Outside of the fact it looks incredible, yeah. it's the fact that, Considering this film, uh, we, we were watching the, the trailer a little earlier, and it, it's almost sort of set up to be kind of actiony and sort of you know, yeah. you're gonna go, you're not going on an adventure, but you you know you're gonna have some excitement here, and this is one of the big action beats in the film, and it is it completely bums you out, you know, oh, yeah, it, yeah. not good when she gets you know uh, uh, sort of retired, um, she you know it's horrible, it's it's really not good at all. One of the things that I that I think is a really and I, I do think people sort of underestimate Harrison Ford as an actor. I think he's a great screen actor. I, I do. I think he's a really, really, really good screen actor. Um, but actually, in this film, whenever he retires one of the replicants, that look of horror on his face. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That look of what have I just done? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You see that when he, you know, when he, when he. Bump, when, you know, when he bumps off the Zora, you know, and particularly the way in which she dies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's a fairly, you know, it's a fairly visceral kill. Yeah. You know, the crashing through the, it's a great stunt, mind. Yeah, it, it, you know, it, it, and it looks, I mean, really, Scott, you know, he's got that commercial eye, isn't he? Yeah. Um, you know, um, but, but also as well, the great thing, what, what sets him apart from, Perhaps some other directors that we could mention who have come into 
directing films from being sort of like music video and commercial directors. He understand understands a sense of uh, of of feeling. You know, he's yeah. he's got he understands it perfectly, and he just he just completely nails that. And uh, as I said, as you said earlier, this is a film of counterpoints. Yeah, all complete, complete. We built up. We got a chase. We built up to thinking that this, you know, oh yeah, she, he's, he's going to get one of them, and uh, and we realised no, 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 this is this film is not going to make you feel that way, no. and uh, yeah, it's a great, great sequence. But in the book, um, yeah. Zora's character has a completely different name and is a completely different character, and her name is Luba, uh, Luba Luft, and she's an opera singer. Um, there's a bit of a nod to it, I think, in the Fifth Element. Okay, just, All right. yeah. just a little yeah. bit of a nod. Um, but Deckard doesn't kill her. He doesn't kill her because he, can't, he, he just can't do it. He just can't bring, he feels really sorry for her. He takes pity on her and he doesn't kill her. Um, and another Blade Runner comes along and, and kills her. Okay. Right. Which is, you know, which is, you know, a fairly, a fairly big, you know, it's a big thing when you think, particularly when you talk about the sort of the idea that um, the reason why Deckard. Uh, can do it he's a replicant so he doesn't feel you know and that's again a big juxtaposition between the book and the film oh, are you telling me the deck guard's a replicant is yeah oh, you... I'm... <laughs> no, I'm sorry what are, what are we watching what what are we watching <laughs> I, this has changed <laughs> yeah no you, you spot on mate you know it's it's a reason uh, i mean obviously um uh brian thinks says he's great at, I don't think we necessarily see him being particularly great in the film as it happens. Uh, you know, he, you know, he does a little bit of snooping, but there's, you know, we we are told that he's great at it, and you know, yeah. he, he gets into situations where he, he sort of like comes in contact with them, um, but he can, um, he's able to go and 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 and, and kill because he's, in, you know, in, in in some respects that his non-humanness allows him to, uh, but of course. I, I guess the film is kind of arguing maybe counter to that as well, because obviously... I think in well, the original, um, I, think it, I think you can get that sense in the original release of the film. In the original theatrical release, there is that sort of moment of, oh, is he? Could he be? Maybe. But then yeah. um, in the director's cut, you get the unicorn scene. Yeah. yeah the dream yeah. of the unicorn. Yeah. Actually, do you know uh, do you know where that piece of footage came from? I have no idea. Go on. It was unused footage from the film Legend. Oh, really? It was completely unused footage from Legend. Um, oh. So when they came to doing the director's cut, um, they took that piece and put it in. He, he must have found the only footage from Legend where the unicorn's horn doesn't wobble on its head. It's, you know, it's flopping around like a semi all the way through. <laughs> Sorry, I must have used that. But, you know, in terms of... But, you know, it's super straight in, yeah. uh, in Blade Runner. It must have been yeah. a good day for him. <laughs> but, as, as you know, yeah, there's... In the original film um, with the... Uh, and I mean, this personal view, god awful voiceover. I appreciate that it, it nods to the sort of the noir uh, sort of underpinnings of the film, uh, but it just it's way too much for my to my mind, uh, you know. And uh, but I have to admit that I've seen the original cuts 
perhaps once or twice seen the director's cut. I mean, God, I don't know how many times, you know. So it's that's my favourite cut. And as you say, it does really link the the idea of uh, Deckard being uh, a replicant. It, it, it's made all the stronger. And then in the final cut, um, I mean, there is there's hardly any sort of doubt in your mind at all. It's it's been quite neatly tied up. Yeah, and um, I mean, that sort of and it's the you know it's for me I like the the subtle suggestion and it, it's kind of left to the audience within the director's cut because obviously um, it, it it is grafting it um, the guy who's um, yeah. following around jo, uh, John um, uh, uh, yeah yeah uh, Gaff who does the um, yeah. the uni- does all the origami and things yeah. Um, What's his name from uh, Battlestar Metallica? Uh, he said Battlestar Metallica. Then, <laughs> see, yeah, that, that was me. a show I'd want to see. Yeah, okay, Battlestar that, Metallica. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, so you know when he does that little bit of origami, and he obviously he leaves that he leaves the unicorn there for him. Now, yeah. Decker has dreamt about the unicorn. Gaff yeah. leads that um, that unicorn there for him, which is a nod to he knows about the implanted memories. Yeah, 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 definitely. And I mean, in terms of Gaff, always seems to be the the character who who knows most about what's going on. Yeah, uh, he, he certainly seems he, he doesn't have a heck of a lot of the screen time. Yeah. But when he comes on, he really makes an impact. Um, you know, he's the one who uses city speak, so he's speaking yeah. in that sort of like you know polyglot language that they've got, which is um, totally made up. It's all improv. Yeah. See, it, isn't it crazy though? Because we come to one of the, the great pieces of um, actor written dialogue of probably all of cinema. Yeah. We don't really come to that. But isn't it fantastic? They spend such a long time on this film. You know, you, you've got the, the, the two the two screenwriters and Ridley Scott chucking everything into it. But then it takes that sort of left field. It takes this actor coming in, having a real emotional connection, yeah. and then just firing it in exactly the right direction. It's yeah, that's that's fantastic. It is, you know, and I, I I've always thought. Um... That those two, I think, you know, I think Harrison Ford's performance in the in in the film, when you can sort of get past, or you sort of put put aside all the all the nonsense that was going on behind the scenes, I think he gives a really really good performance. I think Sean Young is very good in this. Yeah. Um, I think it's probably her best screen performance. Yeah, I think that's fair comment. Yeah. You know, I don't think Ace Ventura, Pet Detective. Um, Pretty good in that though. To give her due. <laughs> And again, you know, she was hiding something there as well. She was hiding know? something there. So. But that character definitely knew what she was hiding. So, yeah. you know, it's, again, uh, you know, digression. I, yeah. But I do think that she, you know, again, she gives a really, really good performance. And that sort of, almost that sort of cold, almost sort of um, high-functioning Asperger's look, feel that she has. You know, that yeah. sort of, you know, it's you, you can clearly see that this is somebody who is struggling with something inside yeah you, you, yeah you can see it you you can see that something's there but actually it's um you know i mean it is Rutger Hauer's show all the way 
Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, just before we come to Rutgerhalla, got Pris. Um, yes. And, uh, you know, there is, it must be difficult when you tell an actor you're going to play a, uh, a role, ultimately a robot, you know, an android. Um, uh, and then, you know, you get to have this multi layered, because, I mean, so Pris speaking with uh, JF Sebastian. Yeah. Um, and she's manipulating him. And uh, we learn really early on when, you know, uh, uh, when a death guard is shown which replicants he's going to be hunting, we, we find out that she's sort of like a, a second-class robot. Yeah. She's she's a, a pleasure bot, uh, yeah. you know. And, but that is a, an exceptionally smart performance, and, and the character that she brings out she gives, is also... She gives uh, a brilliant brilliant performance and i tell you what's actually you know the bit where she where her and jf sebastian first meet yes where they first meet and she gets up and she runs and she stumbles and she goes into the car she falls into like the car and she breaks the glass yeah that wasn't meant to happen okay all right Um, she ended um daryl hannah ended up chipping several bones in her elbow as she fell but she stayed in character the entire time she stayed she stayed in character the entire time um and actually the her relationship with jf sebastian um is you know is i think it's sort of because he's quite childlike yeah and she's very very childlike but there's that real sense of danger with her yeah "Mm, jf i think you might have bitten the bit more off than you can chew here um and you can and you know he you could see this man who was desperate desperate for any kind of company yeah yeah i think that's fair comment i mean you know it's a, it's a guy who spends all his time uh, surrounded by his toys yeah um and then but ultimately uh, you know i think there's that sequence where uh, she's speaking with batty yeah um and uh you know they, they contrive in to to go and see um uh, Eldon Tyrell. El, thank you, uh, Tyrell. And um, you know, she really shows that that is all an act. You know, in terms of, you know, the the the, the, the it's just a facade of immaturity. Uh, and- completely, completely. And I mean, what's interesting again when you look at you know, I'm particularly going sort of from film to book is. You know, in the film, J. J., you know, J.R. Sebastian is, he's a top level genetic, genetic engineer. You know, he is, you know, he is, you know, he's a mega brain, but he can't leave Earth because he has Methuselah syndrome. So he looks like he's aging. Um, In the book, actually, he's, they call him um, a chicken, uh, a chicken head. So he's, you know, um, he suffers brain damage because of the amount of radiation um, okay. That is on the planet, and that's why he can't leave. Um, and he, you know, and his IQ is too low. So it's interesting again how they sort of took, you know, going back to like counterpoint, they sort of took this character and sort of, and it's very very clever writing to do that with a character because you know, in terms of a way in, it's yes. um, I I think it, you know it's a very really really clever, really clever bit. But again, in terms of I know that um, obviously. Unlike books where you can have a, a lot of interior uh, monologue and, and, and you can 
you can discover a character over pages and pages and pages. Film has to be that uh, far more succinct in terms of, especially when it comes to character, etc. And um, yeah, thank God they changed Tyrell to to be in this uh, bespectacled uh, sort of like uh, man genius, and yeah. um, you know because I just don't know how we would work otherwise. No, I mean, you know, and like, I mean. It does, you know, when you look at, the, you know, talk going on to Tyrell, um, yeah. and you look at him, he really, really is that sort of, um, you know, that, 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 that key theme that keeps coming back in the film is about humanity. Um, mm. I think in a lot of ways it's quite a, you know, it's, it's quite a sort of, um, it really does, you know, it's quite a religious film. In a number of aspects, I think there's a you know the bit of a hint to some you know to, to Catholicism, um, you know when you look at you know and he refers to Batty as being the prodigal son. Yeah, yeah. When he yeah. goes and find when he finally find comes back to him, and then there's that scene where you, where Batty kisses him. Yeah. Uh, and that was done because it is an, um, a nod to Judas's kiss. Okay. All right. Um, and that's you know and that's again that that's why it's in there. Um, it, it is. It's. It's one of those films that uh, just entices you to uh, theorize what is going on oh, below. Yeah, you know, because and it's rich enough. So, you know, that is a completely valid reading of of, of it. And I'm sure there's a there, there are ways of of sort of drawing this out in other ways. But I guess you know, the flip side of that is is the fact that the Batty kills his creator, you know. Yeah. Batty, he is Nietzschean, and uh, you know he, he he kills God, um, and and which and you know, but then goes on at the end of the film to transcend this idea of him as being evil by rescuing Harrison Ford off off the side of the uh, of the building, you know. So, um, it, you know, he, he you do not need God to have morality. So it's, you know, there's. Again, and again, that's just me and you just like riffing off one another. You can imagine there are just people just doing this sort of like just loads and loads of, of different meanings and and, well, and just numerous spins on it. I mean, the other recurring theme that keeps cropping up throughout this film as well is eyes. Yeah. You know the eye. You know this eye symbolism is everywhere throughout the film. Everywhere yeah. for you know um, you got the Voicomp. Um, scenes yeah. with us that right you know that close-up of the eye you've got um, that great scene where they go to the eye maker yes yeah 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 uh, you know to, to david lopan's workshop um, yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> um and you know what, what's the line the line um he says chew if um if only you could see what i've seen with your eyes yes exactly that's a, that's a great line that's yeah, an amazing yeah. line that it, you know, and just that sort of, you know, it sort of emphasizes that sort of idea of sort of personal experience in the forming of of an individual psyche. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it, that's 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 a huge point. You know that, that you know you look at that and you know it's it's a psychoanalyst dream, isn't it? Yeah, we, we are we're going to be digging deep here. I can I, I can feel it. I I, I was on a I was on a film podcast. Like, <laughs> the fact we've gone from Ace Ventura to Nietzsche to psychoanalysis. 
Yeah. Yeah. Also, just one little thing that I just want to say, but there, and and it's, this is a very glib, and and you know, in terms of because what, what what you've identified there is is undoubtedly one of the one of the big signifiers of the film, which is the the the, the, the eyes, and uh, you know, you think of the uh, the owl and the fact that there's that. Uh, you know, refraction and, and reflection yeah, yeah. In, in the eyes of all replicants, and definitely, 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 Deckard has that a couple of times towards the end of the film. Um, but Tyrell, who's the big genius top guy, has got just the most shockingly thick jam jar glasses. And you think, well, surely the first thing you do is pop some new eyes in. Yeah, you you think you know he is somebody who you know is able to create beings. You know, he has an understanding of you know, things on a genetic level, but yet he is, you know, he has got the worst pair of glasses. You know, I mean, at least, you know, when you look at sort of Michael Caine in uh, The Chris Files and those type, they were, you know, they were fairly groovy. I have a yeah. very, I wear a very similar pair of specs like that myself. But these things, these sort of like, you know, Dennis Taylor sort of... Dennis uh, Taylor, that's exactly it. Yeah, by the way, uh, we, for some of our people who are from across the pond, do listen to this podcast. Dennis Taylor was a snooker player who wore very, very thick bifocal glasses. So, yeah, and, and curious kind of a game like pool. Yes. But on a big <laughs> There you go. We covered everything, mate. We covered right, everything. We've done it. We've got it covered. I mean, just come twice, just for a second. Yeah, Tyrell. Tyrell gets, you know, the, his demise is his, his, his both his, his eyes and his eye sockets are just completely crushed through. That's so fairly brutal kill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but I still love Batty, and Batty's still by far the most um, empathetic, empathetic character yeah. in in the film. You know, Isn't he's, that interesting he, that the, the person who set up to be the great villain, the monster um, yeah. of the piece, you know, is actually the one with the most soul. Yeah, 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 definitely, definitely the most soul. And I mean, the other thing as well, if you think about the film, then it, it really is sort of, you know, it's it's sort of a, a cautionary tale and the sort of model of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Yes, uh, there, there's definitely nods there. Um, you know, you can see where the inception of some of these ideas are coming from. But yeah, you, you, you're spot on, definitely. You know, it's, um, it is, you know, it is just, this film is absolutely loaded, loaded with, you know, with great subtext. With, with you know, just just this understanding of film and how to sort of add that layer without it being too in your face. Yeah. You know, and I mean, I think obviously you can't do a um, a Blade Runner episode uh, without obviously talking about Ritger Hauer. Let's do that. Yeah. And that, and you know, and eventually, you know, well, let's come around and talk about that speech. It's um, his performance throughout is just—it's incredible. I mean, I've always—I've always, always been a big fan of Ritger Hauer. Always been a big fan of him. Even some of his sort of Verhoeven. Yeah, you know, even some of his lesser stuff. Um, you know, I still find—you know—one of my real guilty pleasures is Split Second. Okay, Have you right. Seen that, one? that is a guilty pleasure. Yes, it is. <laughs> See, I still find, you know, I still find something in that film and his performance. Um, there's something about it. Um, but but let, 
he's never been better than he is in this film. Oh no, no, this is this this for me. I think this yeah. this film, there's Blade Runner, and then his next closest performance, one might argue, would be The Hitcher. All right, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think he's terrifying in The Hitcher. Because The Hitcher is the first of the film. Because after this film, they they try and think, oh yeah, we've got a we've got a leading man here. We've got somebody. Obviously, he's he's a great looking chap, and uh, you know he's he, he can certainly he's got the acting chops. So they, you know, he does a couple of films which just don't do anything at all. No, no. And they go, bugger it, let's go back, Hitcher, let's scare the life out of everybody. And, and yeah, he's awesome in it. You know, he, he, I, I, you, know, I, you know, and of course, like I said, just now, Split Second, it's a very, very silly, 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 ridiculous film. But I really love Split Second. You yeah, know? you're right. It is a very silly film. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but his performance in Blade Runner... Um, you know, it is that so he is the mess. You know, it, it, it sort of messianic. Um, you know, even down to the fact he puts nails through his hands. Yeah. Um, you know, this is your Christian sort of uh, theology sort of link again. Yeah, definitely. You know, the dove. He releases the dove. But you yeah. know, that performance, even though it's very sort of, it's very big, very big mm. for a screen performance, and you know, the facial, the facial expressions that he uses, because he hasn't got an awful lot of dialogue. Um, he's probably got the most in the film, yeah. But actually, um, his storytelling is his physicality. You know, yeah. You know, he can clearly, you know, you you can see how sort of you know how, da- how dangerous he is when he hunts. Uh, you know, he hunts Deckard at the end. You yeah, know? yeah. Um, and he could probably you know at any point really just take him out easily. Easy. Again, which brings me back to that slight comment earlier, which is Deckard really isn't as good as uh, as are we are being led to believe. No, no. Uh, you know, I don't know whether he's had a, a few too many of the of, of the whatever he's drinking, the sake or whatever. Yeah. It's but he's he, he, he's not on point, and fact <laughs> uh, is just playing with him. And um, but it's one that that end sequence is one of the most poignant beautiful human um scenes and you know it, it's made all the, the the greater for two reasons one is the fact that he's, he's not supposed to be human at all exactly. um and and, and b is the fact that it's it's it, it's the actor who's written this he's he, you know he's, he's done it what is it what's the the, the the mythology of it is i think he writes it the, the night before or yeah, something yeah he, i mean the, it, there's sort of varying stories about it but essentially they all kind of agree that the night before he went away and just rewrote it um and he comes up with you know the line of all those moments will be lost like tears in the rain it's just you know that is that, that's that's something that sort of oh you know that transcends film really doesn't it really it sort of it becomes you know it's now become part of you know it's quoted time and time and time and time again, and it's now part of culture. You know, people always they go back um, and look at that, and people use it for all sorts of things now. Yeah, all those yeah. Things. But actually, what that came about was, you know, one actor being completely committed to his role, being committed to his character, and has created such um, a separate identity to himself. That he's re- he realizes that actually my character need, you know at this moment in time would do this. Yeah, you know, it's yeah. um, 
it's a phenomenal piece of work. Phenomenal yeah. piece of work. Absolutely nothing to add there. You know, as you as you like to say, it is phenomenal. I'm quite surprised that you've been able to control yourself and not try and do a Rutger Hauer impression, as you can see. Now. You know, because I do. You know, the the one thing every time I've seen it, um, and it could be because when I saw it first, I was quite young, and I kind of thought he looked a little bit like uh, Anthony Hopkins. Yeah. You know, I I don't. I kind of hear that. I hear a sort of like a Burtness. No, obviously we have. I hold my hands up. We are from South Wales, yeah. and we see it through a certain prism, um, <laughs> you know. Uh, but but you know, it's just that. It's just that. So I thought you were going to go for it. No, and, no, no. And, and I, I, I mean, it's fair to say I, that I mean, uh, my um, thespian days. I have been firmly retired now for a long time. Um, <laughs> but no, there, there is that sort of. You know, when you look at it, and I mean, obviously, living in South Wales, our sort of acting, acting spectrum runs from Stanley Baker right the way through to uh, to Burton, and that's how we judge everything with Michael Sheen in the middle. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's how we judge things on, you know, how many Hopkins would you score this? <laughs> um, on a scale of Stanley Baker's, you know. You do realise that there's there's a big chunk of the American audience now. I uh, just like Stanley Baker. Wow. So, yeah. So Zulu, go and check out Zulu, everyone. Yes, yes. Watch Zulu. You must watch it. See now, Zulu is, and this is going completely off on another level. But you know, uh, <laughs> I, I, but Zulu is my all-time favourite film. Yeah. Well, look again. You know, uh, I think it has got something to do with the fact that that we're Welsh, but also as well, it is a bloody brilliant film. Oh, it's it, it, you know, it's a proper boys' own adventure. It is a yeah, but, great film. But, it, but it, again, we talk about, we've gone from one of the great um, sort of like emotive speeches in film. Um, I mean, literally what Rutger Hauer, um, uh, you know, the words that he says and how he says them, it is seminal. Um, um, bizarrely, we've just had this link now to uh, uh, to uh, Zulu. And the end of that film, it, with a wordless uh, sort of sequence, yeah. which also is sort of seminal and poignant in in a way that, you know, that that, that other mediums can't be, you know, no, well, they certainly be when true. it's succinct. Completely true. I mean, you know, uh, well, I got it written down here, and I think this is an absolutely brilliant quote. Um, Jason, a, um, a guy called Jason Vest, writing um, in. The Future Imperfect, uh, about Philip K. Dick um, at the movies. Um, he says that Howard's deft performance is heartbreaking in its gentle evocation of the memories, experience and passions that have driven Batty's short life. That, you know, I think in terms of sort of praise for an actor's performance, that is... Um, yeah. That is, yeah, that's... You know. But he also looks so cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's, you know, you you do get a touch of the sort of like you know we're at the height of of the police mania and and Sting is sort of yeah. like you know Sting is inspiring cart, uh, comic book characters. You know, yeah. he's he's got Constantine is pretty much sort of like you know uh, aesthetically ripped from sort yeah. of Sting, uh, and then you've got uh, Rick Howell who's out stinging Sting. It's uh, I mean, and you, know, it, you know, in terms of sort of, if you think Ridley Scott did Dune and Sting was in it, he certainly did out Sting Sting, really, didn't he? Because <laughs> Sting is awful. He is yeah. awful in that film. Absolutely awful. 
you're upsetting a lot of Sting fans now, man. You're gonna get loads of you're gonna get loads of abuse from the Sting maniacs. I tell you what, you know, going you know, sort of just moving on to the sort of the you know, the more trivia kind of things. Uh, yeah. Ridley Scott's original first cut of Blade Runner ran at four hours long. Oh. Okay. Four hours long. No. Obviously, the, the director's cut is, is a slightly longer cut. Yeah. I, I, I don't see where the four hours... Because there's not enough plot in it. No. To, uh, unless... Yeah. I won't mind having a look, though, to be fair. It'd be, it'd be interesting to sit there and see what is actually in that four hours. Yeah. Um, because it, I think... The longer the film goes on, and I think the more de- and the sort of the, the different types of cuts that we've seen. So you get the director. Here's another piece of interesting trivia, mind you. But the director's cut yeah. is a bit of a misnomer. Go on. Because Ridley Scott, even though he oversaw lots of it and he okayed everything, he had very very little to do with it because he Re- was actually off making. Um, oh, what, what is it? Conquest of Paradise. Oh yeah, 1492. 1492. He was making that film. Okay. Once they were doing this. Um, that again, another shocking shoot by all accounts. Yeah. From what, yeah. <laughs> um, I, that is that is amazing because obviously there had been other, uh, and I'm using parenthesis here, directors. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you'd seen sort of the Wild Bunch that had a, had a different version. Peck and Parr did a different version for that. And yeah. obviously, you know, uh, James Cameron, who's, kind of a director that's kind of linked in with Ridley Scott in, in many ways. He'd done uh, a different cut of The Abyss and had done a different cut of Aliens. Yeah. Director's cut, the first time it's called Director's Cut, is for Blade Runner. Yeah. Yeah. And, the, and, he, and he didn't actually cut it himself. No. No, he didn't I cut feel, it himself. I've, I feel been, I've been robbed. <laughs> I demand my money back. Yeah, Definitely. I mean, Definitely. But what was the, you know we were talking earlier about sort of you're expecting this more action vibe. Mm. Um again, going back to Ritka Hauer, the final scene was supposed to supposed to be shot in a factory. And it was okay. gonna be more of an action based type, you know, old fashioned duking it out kind of scene. Um okay. but before pre production start, Hauer Ritka Hauer actually sat down and said, Well look. That, that's that's going to be completely out of place within this within this film. That's not going to work. And they took it on board, and that's how that finally said, you know, it should be more of a chase. Well, okay, all right. You know, yeah, yeah. It's... The other thing is, of course, Terminator comes only like you know a year or two after, and yeah. obviously the sort of big denouement there is in in a in a factory. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, the other thing as well that they changed was that. Um, Ridley Scott wanted a more action-packed opening scene to the film. He wanted okay. this, you know, he wanted a sort of, you know, to really set up sort of Deckard's ruthless character. He really want, he, he had this sort of all set out, um, and he had a scene written that would take place um, in a house in the countryside, um, and apparently Deckard is sat silently sitting. He's, he's just there. He's just silently sitting, and he's just waiting. And all, and all that's going on whilst he's waiting is there's a pot of soup boiling on the fire. And he just sat there waiting. And suddenly, um, a man comes in. He's wearing, like, a protection suit. He's got a gas mask on. 
doesn't even notice Deckard, but you know, he, he sort of he doesn't notice him at first, walks out, and then sort of no, you know, sort of looks over at him, um, but ignores him, um, and he walks over and starts tending the soup, um, and then he sort of goes over and he's sort of just about to start talking to Deckard, and as he opens his mouth to speak to him, Deckard shoots him, just straight okay. out. Um, and so this idea that you know you've never seen Deckard before, you don't know what the hell is going on in the film, and then suddenly he's just sat there in complete silence, waiting. There's this soup boiler on the fire. This bloke comes in, doesn't he really pay much attention? Starts sort of turn, you know, and then starts speaking, and suddenly he just blows him away. And then he walks over to the guy and takes all takes the mask off him, and then removes his lower jaw, which shows that he's a replicant. Right. Okay. We got you. Um, but obviously, you know, you said about the sort of the script beat going through multiple changes, got completely waylaid, and if you, what a different film that would have been. I, I'm just going to say the, the great thing about Blade Runner is it's so, um, it, you know, we've mentioned it now a number of times, but it's it's so rich in terms of a, a visual and, and and film experience that I can completely see that it's just that it doesn't take place in that film. No. Do you know what I mean? It's it just it would serve it wouldn't serve the film particularly well to be in there yeah uh, but it sounds like a case of you know that that uh screenwriting term where you've got to kill your babies uh it, it, it was possibly a favorite scene because it sounds pretty cool yeah. but it just wouldn't have done that film any good whatsoever no, because like you said and, and it would have really taken away if you had that kind of i think if there could have been that kind of character it would really take away from the impact that the deaths have yeah, within the film because yeah. we've already said about you know you know you can see how it affects him when he kills that, that kills Zora but also that yeah. you know when you look at Pris when he retires Pris that's awful it, that's it a is a really awful uncomfortable <laughs> moment of her thrashing around and screaming and he shoots her what five you know maybe five six times and it's just like get it right you're supposed to be the best of the best here which, as I think we've alluded to, he doesn't. If he's the best of the best, the rest must be really very shabby indeed. Well, the guy who's supposedly the best was killed at the beginning of the film. Yeah, well, there you go. Yeah, yeah. So you know, it's but yeah, you're right. In terms of the the, the press death scene, in my mind goes on for like ten minutes. <laughs> Obviously, it doesn't. But it just is horrific, and you it's, just wanted to. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it it sort of you know and. The, her, the way she moves, yeah, she looks like a, she looks like a spider. Yeah, she's all folded up and thrashing around. It's just, oh, it, it it's hard to watch. Yeah, and and that definitely, you know, again, like so many of the things, it's gone on to influence other things. But you can, you uh, there's uh, definitely uh, AI is is definitely there's um yeah. I think by some some other robots sort of doing that sort of like. Uh, Herbie Hancock sort of freak out, um, you know. <laughs> it's yeah, it is not easy watching that. It's got to no. be said. I mean, when you look at like you know, you, you sort of look at Blade Runner and you look at the films that it has influenced. Um, I mean, when you look at Tim Burton's Batman, there's a touch of yeah. Blade Runner in there. Yeah, um, definitely. You know, James Cameron's Strange Days. Yes. No, Strange yeah, yeah. Days. I think is a really good film. Nobody's seen it though. No, nobody watched it. Nobody watched it. <laughs> it but but yeah, you can definitely it's it's playing with similar sort of themes as well. So yeah, you know it's a, it's a it's a cracking film. You know, Dark City is another one. 
Yeah, Dark, Dark City is, is is one of those films. I, I mean, I remember it when it came out initially and picked up my empire, as, as, you, <laughs> as you do. Uh, and um, uh, sort of, you know, I was super keen to go and see it. And uh, yeah, I think you can count me as not one of its biggest fans, it's got to be said. Aesthetically very nice, I, admittedly. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. I can see I'm upset. Um, I love- no, I mean, I don't mind it. I don't mind it as a film. I don't think it's a great film. I mean, the other one where it's clearly, you know, it, they've clearly tried to, in, you know, it's clearly been influenced heavily by um, is the Keanu Reeves classic, um, Johnny Mnemonic. Oh, hey, superb. Um, you know, <laughs> absolutely fantastic. There's nothing else that Keanu's done that is better than that. Certainly not in sci-fi that I can think of, or no. or futuristic yeah. film. Definitely not. No, he didn't. He hasn't done an awful lot in the sci-fi genre, really, has he? <laughs> I hate Johnny Mnemonic. Yeah, it's there. I've said it. I hate Johnny Mnemonic. Katano can... can't save it. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Well, again, and that does speak volumes, doesn't it? You know, Katano cannot save it, and even Dolph Lundgren appearing as God. Yeah, it's it's not a great film, but I'm sure it's got his fans. So, uh, you know, and yes, look, everybody is entitled to enjoy whatever they like. I am, there's going to be moments in time where, you know, I've already mentioned split second. Yes. You know, I may even mention that I do like American Ninja with Michael Dudikoff. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, I would imagine that you would like American Ninja. So that's, uh, <laughs> you're going to have to, because obviously so far, what you've done is that you've explored some absolutely great films. Admittedly, you did the Killing Joke as well, which is great in and of itself, but not quite the caliber of the oh, other no, films. No. So I'm I'm looking forward to you doing an absolute bargain basement sort of just dreck beyond dreck. Well, I've I've been toying with the idea of doing a sort of maybe an all canon episode. Okay, all right, that um, sounds pretty. Sort of going, you know, looking at uh, possibly American Ninja. Um, with um, Black Eagle, dude. Uh, I will. I will be number one there to download it and listen, hundred percent, no problem. And then I may because obviously it takes about you know thirty seconds to talk about those, the, the plot and everything else. But I'm still toying with doing an all ninja episode of doing Enter the Ninja, Revenge of the Ninja. <laughs> And Ninja 3, Domination. Okay, are you going to pop in three little ninjas into that as well? Oh, no, I won't touch that. Because i got to be honest, they kind of creep me out. <laughs> but, um, but, yeah, I mean, yeah, we're getting way, way, way off track here. Yeah. But, yeah. We, yeah, so watch out for those future episodes or not. Um, <laughs> but going back to Blade Runner, um, what's your views on the upcoming sequel? Well, I wasn't a big fan of Prometheus, which I guess is the the last time that uh, Ridley Scott had gone back to one of his earlier uh, successful stomping grounds. Um, I mean, I say I didn't like it. I mean, I really, I genuinely, really deeply didn't like it. Yeah. Um, admittedly, I've only seen it twice, and I probably do need to go back and just give it mm. third time's charm. But um, But he's got some great people in it. Um, it's well, just let's look at the cast, okay? You've got Harrison Ford, okay, Ryan Gosling, great. You've got Robin Wright, 
uh, who's amazing, yeah. Dave Batista. Who's, who's, who's on a hell of a role when it comes to films. I mean, he, he, you know, uh, he was in that dreadful James Bond film, but he was pretty good in it, to be fair, sort yeah. of stomping. Yeah. And then, here's a controversial one now, is Jared Leto. Yeah. I think you probably know why that's a little controversial, because he's a fine actor. I mean, you know, he, he, he is. He, yeah. He is. I mean, I've just about forgiven him for 30 seconds to Mars. Just about. Yeah, but I, yeah, I can't. It's not his fault. I going back to an earlier podcast that he did, um, you know, and he has. It, it possibly not his fault that that is the worst screen joker. Oh, um, you really? know. Oh yeah, really, really. <laughs> We are definitely going to take this podcast up. So that is my own opinion. I am. I am not hating on Jared Leto. I think he's a great actor uh, from Fight Club all the way through to uh, Dallas Buyers Club. Yeah. The guy has got acting chops, no doubt about it. Um, I hope he's right in that. There's a good thirty minutes of his performance on the cutting room floor. Yeah, I think there is. I think there really is. Um, and I think that film is clearly it was a film made by. Um, committee mm, yeah got it, it written all over it yeah I, I think it's fair to say that you know um and I, I wouldn't be the first person to say this so i'm you know i'm i'm not suggesting that this is my own sort of like you know my own thoughts on this but um th there was the the progression from the early trailers when everybody was still expecting batman versus superman to do big numbers yeah. which you did go do but obviously it had a critical kick in at the same time um, and then it was like, oh, wait a second, guys, we've got to marvel this up. Uh, we've got to, we've got to inject Guardians of the Galaxy into this, and uh, it just, you know, and Guardians of the Galaxy is a great film, yeah. uh, but you know, just trying to put that filter over. I suspect David Ayer's original vision wasn't the film that yeah. we saw. Yeah, and I mean, the worst, and I mean, it, interestingly enough, though, going back to Blade Runner, when you look at you know, we you know we had a look at that original trailer. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That original trailer, telling it to that audience at that period in time, does not tell you a film. Doesn't show you a film. Doesn't tell you the story about uh, a film that is going to ask you to question what it is to be human. Yes. Yeah. That's that's a fair comment. You know, it's you know you you think that you're getting some kind of gritty noir sam spade type thriller and yeah. what you actually get is not really that you don't really get the film that you're supposed to see until 1992 yes yeah yeah you know it takes that long um and it's interesting in there how a trailer can completely make or completely destroy a film yeah i mean you know uh Trailers and, you know, you know, I wouldn't be the first person to say this either, that trailers are a lot savvier now. I mean, you can get uh, you can get a film sold because of the way that Hollywood is is sort of set up in terms of making it back in the opening weekend and then forgetting about a film. You know, the, the trailers and stuff are, are uber important, which potentially back in 82 when this came out. And, and again, Blade Runner wasn't a massive, successful hit. You know, it was... It, it, it bombed. You know, you know it it found its VHS and uh, and of course famously on laser disc, 
Yeah. Um, you know, uh, I can barely remember. He lied. Um, you know, it's... <laughs> It, it, so you know, in, in terms of in, in terms of advertising, in terms of telling you, in terms of asking you to buy into a film, um, that film, the, the the trailer for Blade Runner doesn't really say it, but it but it also doesn't really sell, doesn't not sell you the film. That doesn't yeah. quite make sense, yeah. is it? You know, in the way the Suicide Squad had like half a dozen different uh, trailers yeah. that were bang bang bang, this is what it's going to be, and then. The shame of it is, even though it showed you just about everything that was in the film, uh, you know, it, it didn't actually, uh, you know, deliver, didn't deliver you anything. No. no. I mean, one of the other things we talked earlier about um, Ridley Scott's tough time on the film. Yeah. And we talked about T-shirt gate. Uh, yes. On the, on the T-shirt wars, as they called it. Um, it all came about um, because Ridley Scott did a interview. And in the interview, he talked about the difference between working with British crews yeah. and working with American crews. And he said that um, when you're working with a British crew, you'd say that you want something done, and they turn around and say, yes, Governor, and then they go off and do it. Now, the makeup supervisor on Blade Runner managed to get, see here that interview. Uh, and it's a guy called Marvin G. Westmore. Um, and he got really, really pissed off about it. Um, <laughs> to the point where he had T-shirts printed up with, yes, governor, kiss my ass on them. <laughs> um, and apparently, you know, and this was the kind of thing that he was fighting against on set all the time. No, isn't that, it, it's interesting as well, because um, the, the, the bit that I know of that is, is the fact that there was then this massive animosity between the British crew that got over there yeah. and the American crew that were there. And of course, you know, when you just flash forward a couple of years, you've got, again, another way that James Cameron and, and Ridley Scott kind of have, you know, just a couple of links where they, they tied in. Uh, James Cameron's making um, Aliens, and, and he manages to really upset all of the British crew in terms of because he's obviously he's James Cameron. He's got a very, uh, again, not actually met the guy personally or worked for him, but everything you read is quite dictatorial in terms of the way that he goes about things. And, um, you know, you never know. You could have, uh, it could have been some of those uh, British crew members who'd gone out with Ridley uh, working on Aliens. And, you know, it's... Uh, Get counterpoints. We're coming back. Counterpoints, counterpoints, my counterpoints, friends. Counterpoints. So here we go. Use the big time. Use the big call. Right. Um, I tell you what. I will go first because well, we're going to say, you know, what we're going to rate this film. So we're going to go from, you know, out of ten. What are we going to rate this? Okay. Now yeah. I'm going to give my rating based solely on the director's cut because yeah. that's what I've seen time and time again. All right. Um. For me, this is a 9.5, and it is a must-own. I think it needs to be in every film fan's collection because it. I think it's a film that transcends genre. I think it, it's a film that really manages to meld um, great cinematic set pieces with great out, uh, great art house aesthetics, 
I think it is, you know, it, it, and I think it's a very, very important film for science fiction. I think it's a very, it's, it's, it's sort of, for a, you know, obviously there have been adult science fiction films made previously. When you look at Alien and you go through and you look at those different ones. But actually, this is the time, this is a film that where science fiction really takes that big leap forward. Um, and it is, it, it is the, you know, the true dawning of that, that sort of cyberpunk um, genre. And yeah. from here, then, you'd get the book New Romancer. Um, yeah. And, it, it, you know, it is such an important film for the genre of science fiction. Yeah. So for me, it's 9.5. Yeah, look, um, I, I'm with you. Uh, I give it 9.5 attack ships off the <laughs> It's, you know, it, I'm, I'm with you 100%. You know, because because I can't quite say that anything is 10 out of 10 absolutely perfect, but this is such a rich experience. And, uh, yeah, as, as you rightly say, um, everybody should see it, um, you know, it is something. Look, all I'm going to do is repeat you, man. You're completely right. It, it's it's a film that trans- transcends the genre. Um, it's got a heap load to say, um, and it says it with just absolute perfect style. Yeah, that's you know I I'm speechless for the for, for one of the very few times in my life I am absolutely speechless, um, and I think that just about wraps us up. So, mm. is there any shout outs you'd like to give? Um, anywhere you people can find you on Twitter, on uh, any other social media, or anything you want to plug at this moment in time. As you know, Hugh, I am shockingly easy when it comes to actually putting myself out there. Um, I'm, I'm on I'm on Twitter somewhere, but really, I don't really post that much. Um, I, I think one thing, considering we've been talking about Blade Runner, the one thing that I'm quite excited for at the moment, and I suspect you might be as well. You, you were talking about films that come before Blade Runner. One of the great sort of, you know, uh, robots go bad films yeah. is Westworld. And I yeah. cannot wait to see Westworld, which I think, um, as we talk, it's going to be showing in America tonight, but we get to see it on Tuesday. So really looking forward to it. I love Westworld. I do love yeah. Westworld. I think, you know, yeah. I, um, I think Michael Crichton excelled himself with Westworld uh, stronger than Jurassic Park maybe well yeah yeah well yeah I mean possibly because of, I would have seen it when I was when I was young and I would have seen Westworld quite a few times before I saw Jurassic Park Jurassic Park is pretty pretty good uh, pretty pretty young. and I mean again you talk about aesthetics I mean it is literally the benchmark still for um, you know, uh, CG effects in a film. Um, but Westworld, that is just such, you'll bring a man as, as, a, as a robot going around just being a badass. Absolutely amazing. Yeah, no, I'm completely with you on that. Uh, Alex, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on. Um, I hope you come back again. Um, I'm sure yeah. there's lots more that we can, uh, that we can talk about. We can, uh, discuss, um, you know, it's been an absolute pleasure. So thank you very much for being on. Hey, thanks for having me and, uh, you know, loving the show and keep it going, yeah? Yeah, I will do. I will do. Thank you very much. And that just about wraps up episode five of the Undead Wookiee cast. Um, once again, thank you to my co-host this evening, Mr. Alex Stevens. Um, 
always a pleasure, sir. Great to hear from you and really, really hope you can come back soon. Um, as always, I want to give a big shout out to my man Blake over at Spivey Point on Twitter. Guys, get over onto his Twitter handle. That's uh, Blake at Spivey Point. Um, always, always worth a look. Um, a tweeter of the highest quality. Um, I want to say hello to my man CJ Smith over at the Bad Horror Movie blog. Um, again, great writer, funny, clever. Um, review some great films, some hidden gems, some guilty pleasures. Um, get over there and check his uh, check his blog out. Um, you can find him over at WordPress. Um, as always, I want to say, guys, if you're gonna listen to podcasts, if you're gonna, particularly if you're a horror fan, you need to be listening to the horror movie podcast. You got Jay of the Dead over there. You got Jotty Wolfman Josh. You've got. Uh, Dr. Shock himself, Dave Becker. Guys, get over there and listen to them. Check out uh, Dr. Shock's pod, um, blog, uh, DVD Infatuation. It is It is phenomenal. Um, and his reviews are insightful uh, and very, very clever and well worth, you know, and well worth a look at. Um, I'd also want to say, uh, get yourselves over and listen to Land of the Creeps uh, with Gregor Mortis and his crew over there. Again, brilliant, brilliant show. Um, and if especially if you're a fan of Italian horror, get yourself over there. Um, I was fortunate enough this weekend to spend a bit of time at uh, Bristol HorrorCon, and uh, I'd like to say uh, uh, I had a great time there. Got to meet some really, really, really wonderful, clever, um, insightful people. Um, and I would like to give a big shout-out to Chris Sides, who is writer of the graphic novel Dark Matter. I uh, picked myself up a copy of it, and it's brilliant, guys. I really, really like it. Um, and for, like a sort of, um, it has an anthology sort of portmanteau feel to it. It is absolutely brilliant, and that's available on Redshift Press. Um, also, uh, you need to get yourselves over to Vimeo and check out the Suspiria Noir guys, and check out their short film, Feed the Black. Um, I was really enough, lucky enough to meet the director and people who worked on that film. Honestly, it's really, really good. If you like your folksy horror, if you're into your sort of uh, blood on the devil's claw kind of thing, guys, get yourself over there and uh, check that out. Um, as always, to everybody who's tweeted, to subscribe to my YouTube channel. Um, if this is the first time that you're listening to the show, please subscribe. Um, I'm very, very humbled by the support that I'm giving, the fact that... Um, my Twitter account for at the Undead Wookie is growing every single day. Um, it's really, really good. The fact that I'm getting lots of positive feedback. Uh, guys, please feel free to comment. Let me know what you like. Let me know what you don't like. Um, I really, really appreciate that. Um, as always, I'm really humbled by your response. And the fact that you spent this amount of time listening to myself and my good friends sort of ramble on. Um, so once again, thank you very much. So all that's left for me to say then is, in the immortal words of Count Dacula, good night out there, whatever you are. 